This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for joining. There's a long overdue social and cultural reckoning unfolding in this country, and a key part of it is looking head-on at the ways that racism has so insidiously permeated every aspect of our lives and our institutions. One organizational facet of America that is making an effort to do better in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion, is environmental stewardship organizations. Our next guest took a deep dive into how Metro Detroit environmental groups are addressing a need for diversity. Her piece is out today in the weekly Planet Detroit newsletter. Author and journalist Anna Clark, welcome back to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. How are you? I'm good. It's great to hear from you, and I'm really glad uh, you're here to talk about this. Uh, So for people who might have no idea that this is an issue, I want to start with a line from your piece for Planet Detroit. You write that, quote, white people overwhelmingly dominate leadership roles, even though people of color also have intimate relationships with the natural world. And despite the ways that environmental injustice disproportionately harms communities of color, including in Flint and Detroit, you point to a longstanding pattern of exclusion that has been playing out. Give us a big picture of what's going on nationally before we talk about the local aspect of this. Sure. Um, well, nationally, um, a lot of our most significant, substantial legacy environmental organizations like the Sierra Club, like the Union for Concerned Scientists, a lot of other very influential groups have been um, doing a lot of, have, have, have been venturing into a lot of self-reflection, reckoning with their own complicated histories um, uh, as, as part of this sort of wider civil rights movement that, that's going on. Um, for many of these groups, like the Sierra Club, for example, it, it was founded 128 years ago, largely for wealthy white men who wanted to preserve the wilderness that they enjoyed doing mountaineering and enjoyed hiking and things like this. Um, and uh, a lot of the roots of that have um, uh, that legacy has perpetuated onto this day. So people are um, recognizing more that uh, the environmental issues are not exclusive of social issues, um, and also you know recognizing um, most particularly that their memberships, their their staff, their um, board members, their, the people with decision-making power within these organizations are almost entirely white um, and in ways that do not reflect the communities that they serve and do not reflect the communities that have meaningful relationships uh, with the natural world. Hmm. Um, in the piece you talk with and about the story of Artina Sadler, who's the first chief of diversity, equity, and inclusion here on Clinton Metro Parks, here in Southeast Michigan, what can you tell us about her and what her story represents in a in a bigger sense? Well, this is it is a really interesting and wonderful story in many ways. She she started this job um, about eighteen months ago. The very first chief of of diversity, equity, inclusion at um, a very large organization that is caretake is a caretaker for about thirteen parks. 25,000 acres over like five counties. It has a couple of hundred people on its full-time staff and many more seasonal and part-time employees. And that here in Clinton Metro Parks, they've, they've, um, they, they're supported by a millage that the entire region pays into, but the parks have uh, 
somewhat sometimes fraught history with its uh, relationships with the communities that it serves. I mean, it's, it's uh, a lot of people of color have said that they don't feel particularly welcome there. They're, the parks are not very accessible by public transportation. If you don't happen to live in the generally more rural and white areas that are near the parks, um, she's uh, come on board um, this organization to um as part of its long-term commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, both within the organization and within um, itself and within within the parks. And so they've been doing um, a lot of work along this that um, uh, in many ways kind of, you know, has been accelerated by uh, the events of the last few months. But it's, you know, she started out with doing this, like, very intensive survey, trying to understand where the staff is at, um, how uh, how and why people of color may not have been supported or um, uh, as staff members as and especially in leadership roles within the staff and also thinking a lot about what it needs to feel um, as, as people of color to feel welcome invited um, in in these parks that are their own public parts the, the parks that these communities um, support as much as anyone else. Mm. Hmm. And and as you point out in your piece, there does seem to be this willingness, I guess, at this point to to confront this and to think differently about how to include more people in these organizations. Uh, you point out that five local local watershed councils in Metro Detroit have banded together for an audit and training that focuses on how to address structural racism. Right. One, you know, one thing that a lot of groups, especially smaller groups, um, have said is a barrier to um, uh, diversifying their staff and diversifying their boards. They, they often cite a lack of capacity. Well, here's an um, example of some nonprofits who have been who have who have decided this is serious enough to not let that be the end of the conversation. Like they they they've. Um, they banded together and applied jointly for a grant to support um, um, a, a, a paying for a consultant and the staff time to participate in the um, in sort of like a, a, a collaborative process to do to examine their own internal structures um, um, that might that are um, that are uh, uh, sustaining a pattern of making these watershed organizations around the region almost entirely uh, white, not, not representing the diversity of the communities, again, that they serve. So, um, so I, I think that's a really interesting way <clears throat> to, um, a real, that collaboration is a really interesting way to expand the capacity to, to make sure that we're doing what we need to do and getting the tools that uh, they need to do to, um, to, uh, to, to meet uh, community need, to meet these really urgent um, questions that are not separate from the day-to-day work of, of caring for the, the rivers and watersheds that the groups uh, love so much. Yeah. I mean, one of the really interesting dynamics, I think, in this in this whole discussion is the idea that environmental groups and environmental organizations are thought of and think of themselves as being quite progressive. And there's something, there's something almost inconsistent with the idea that organizations that fall into those categories would have problems with this kind of progressivity. But I, I, I don't think that's necessarily all that uncommon. It may not be intuitive, but it's something that I think plays out in a number of different uh, in a number of different ways. 
Yes, I mean, and the pattern and the pattern is just indisputably clear. And and first of all, like I mean, I think it also is important to acknowledge that there are a lot of environmental organizations and and people who have banded together um, within communities of color, powered by communities of color that have been there, you know, doing lots of work all along, including here in Detroit around urban agriculture, around water access. Um, it, it sometimes I think it's a little bit loaded about what we call an environmental group or not, and mm. <laughs> what we count as environmentalism. Um, sometimes it almost seems that it, it, you know, that 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 word is only applicable to these groups that are um, generally powered by um, a lot of uh, white leaders. Um, so, um, so I think it's important to, you know, just acknowledge that there is some that, that there's. It's not. It's not that communities of color have not been, you know fighting this fight for a very long time. Sure. But that kind of presses that, that kind of pushes the question, you know, even further, right? Like it kind of, it kind of just makes it even more of an uncomfortable um, fact to look at the pattern of large and small groups the newer groups and, and, and legacy groups that, that, you know, when you look at the um, just like disproportionate number of white people on their staffs, on their, and especially in their um, um, leadership positions, and on their boards, um, and 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 you know, it, it, it's just it's just clearly. I mean, it's not just a coincidence, right? You know, and, and at a certain point, we have to like look at like the reasons why that is, which is why at least some groups, you know, have been um, taking this very seriously and 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 trying to evaluate like what 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 are the contributing factors that um that are leading to this what how are we applying how are we posting jobs how are we what kind of requirements are we uh putting on these jobs are they are they necessary um requirements for doing this job well are we valuing different kinds of experience the way that we should are we who are we connecting with who are you know i mean like there's a there's a lot of like internal work i think to be done some groups um, have been moving forward into that, like the here on Clinton Metro Parks, like the like the uh, watershed groups. Um, others, I think, are much newer to these conversations. Um, and some people express concern about, like, oh, that's um, you know, we're we're we've got so much on our plate right now, trying to solve climate change and so on. It, it, a lot of people, I think, have used as a cited as a reason why they can't go full into this as like. Um, um, you know, concern. They're concerned about mission creep. They're concerned about you know they, they already have their their plates are already overflowing with you know all that they need to do. But um, but as as some of these leaders have been asking, you know, like well, you know, um, if, if you don't do it, then what? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like I, I mean, your ability. Like I think that I think a lot of people are recognizing that these uh, the ability of these environmental groups to succeed in what they're doing to 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 achieve the progressive ends that they're. Um, um, uh, looking for like definitely depends on um, bringing in um, the ingenuity, the intelligence, the talents, the lived experience of all different kinds of people in our community um, who all have um, a stake mm. in our environmental well-being. Mm. Okay, Anna Clark, author of *The Poison City: Flint's Water and the American Urban Tragedy*, and independent journalist based in Detroit just wrote a new piece for Planet Detroit about the lack of diversity among environmental organizations. Uh, Anna, it is always great to talk with you. I'm really glad uh, you came by today. Thank you so much. And thank you for the conversation with Harriet Washington as well. That was wonderful. Oh, yes, yes, she was really <laughs> great. <laughs> 
Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow. We're going to have a conversation about the future of college football and a look at how department stores and big box retailers are faring amid a pandemic and a surging reliance on online giant Amazon. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.